good morning. And thanks to our visitors for participating in the worship team. It's pretty good, right? First time here, you join in on the worship. <laughs> so Sarah mentioned this morning is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, and we are going to wrap up our extended Advent series that we've been going through in Isaiah chapter 40. And while in our culture, Advent has essentially become synonymous with the period of time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's much more than that. I don't think we need to go too deep into the Latin origins of the word, but literally the word Advent means coming or arrival, where I think the best definition that I've seen was a hopeful expectation that God will show up. And as we've gone through our passage so far in Isaiah 40, I think we've seen that hopeful expectation each and every Sunday that we've given a message. Six weeks ago, we saw that hopeful expectation as Sarah brought us a message on verses 1 and 2. And that scripture, just to remind you, was, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And Sarah showed us that God's promise that he would be true to his word and his covenant was a source of hope for his people. And so there indeed was an expectation that God himself would show up and end the hardship that they experienced. We saw that same hopeful expectation four weeks ago. Andrew brought us a message on verses 3 through 5. That scripture was, A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And here Andrew taught us that God's people were not just to expect God to come, but we were actually to prepare the way for his arrival. But this preparation was not anything to do with external barriers, as there's nothing external that could prevent God from coming. Rather, it was about our internal barriers. And so we were to repent and do a complete renovation of ourselves in order to remove all those obstacles and barriers that separate us from God. So the preparation is essentially expectation in action, right? God's going to show up, and so we must make sure that we're ready. And then two weeks ago, we saw the same hopeful expectation when Dave brought us the message on verses 6 through 8, which says, A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of our God endures forever. And as Dave taught us, God himself is the correct object of our hope and expectation. People come and go. We change our minds. We change the object of our desires. We're like grass that withers and flowers that fall. But God remains consistent. His word endures forever. And in his word and in him, we can continue to place our hope, our trust, and our expectation. And so today we see that this hopeful expectation that God will show up becomes a reality 
God shows up. But before we go into that, let's take a moment and ask God for his blessing and understanding his word. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we have this opportunity to gather together this Advent season to hear your word, to study what you have for us, and to celebrate that Jesus has come. Help us to receive this word you have for us, and help us to remember that while we associate Christmas with gifts of many sorts, none is greater than the gift you gave us with your son Jesus. Amen. And so now we come to verses 9 through 11, which is our focus for today. Hear God's word. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is the word of the Lord. So as we look at this passage, it has a similarity with the one that precedes it, in that we have a voice, an unidentified voice, that's commanding someone to make a proclamation. And if you read other translations like the English Standard Version, it'll say the recipient of this command is identified as the herald of good news. And this herald is to deliver a message, and that message is, here is your God. Or other translations say, behold your God, much like the song we just sang. So if Advent is indeed a hopeful expectation that God will show up, here in verse 9, we see that expectation becomes a reality. God has shown up, and he is here. But I think if we really want to understand the significance of this phrase, here is your God, it's important for us to understand, here's that word again, the context of the herald's message. So this passage in Isaiah 40 uh, is prophetic in its nature, meaning that as I, Isaiah wrote it, most likely his words were intended for future generations as opposed to his own generation. And one of those generations that we've talked about throughout this series was the Jews who lived in exile in Babylon. About 100 years after the time of Isaiah, Jerusalem would be defeated, and its people sent off to Babylon to live in exile. Now, shortly before this happened, the prophet Ezekiel records a vision that he had, where the glory of the Lord departs from the temple in Jerusalem. And I think this kind of gives us an example that as God people, God's people were sent off to live in exile and spent those decades there, they most likely believed that God had indeed deserted them. Several decades later, the story kind of picks up, and the Persian Empire defeats the Babylonian Empire. And under the Persian rule, the, Jew, the Jews are allowed to return to their holy city of Jerusalem. And so these words in Isaiah 40, here is your God, combined with their return to Jerusalem, would have been a source of great hope for this generation. This is exactly what they had been waiting for those 75 years in exile. They would have seen it most likely as an indication that God had indeed returned to his people. Now we've talked about another generation in this series that this prophecy of Isaiah applies to. 
and that would be those who were alive at the time of Jesus' birth. Some scholars say that preceding Jesus' birth, from the time of Malachi until then, there was a period about 400 years, sometimes known as 400 years of silence. <clears throat> Not all scholars agree on this fact, but I think regardless of whether there was 400 years of silence from God or not, uh, is a little bit less important. Because I think what we can all agree on is it wasn't a pleasant time for God's people. They started off under control of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire would one day be overtaken by the Greek Empire. Following the death of Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire would be split into four kingdoms. They would find themselves under the rule of two of those four kingdoms at one point in time. Then there was a brief period where they regained their independence, only to one day be under the control of the Roman Empire. And so I think as you look through that history there, and they're under control of so many different groups of people and so many different empires, you can get a sense that throughout that time, God's people longed to know and to hear from God that he was indeed with them. They longed to hear the message which essentially was proclaimed on the night of Jesus' birth. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. It's really the same message we have here in Isaiah 40, verse 9. Here is your God. So both of these generations, the one in, of exile in Babylon and the ones alive at the time of Jesus' birth, they long for some sign that God was indeed with them. And of course, today as we look back, we have the gift of hindsight, and we know that God actually never truly left his people. During the time of Babylonian exile, as you read through the book of Daniel, you read the story of three of Daniel's friends who get thrown into a fiery furnace. And yet there's a fourth that's in the, the furnace with them. God himself prevents them from being burned from the heat and the flames. And while we don't have any scriptures to tell us about the time between the prophet Malachi and Jesus' coming, we do have scriptures that tell us that God will always be with us. God promised his people that he would never leave or forsake them. And as we saw two weeks ago with Dave's message, God always remains true to his promises. So I think we can be confident that even through the potential 400 years of silence, God was with his people. And of course today, we know that God is here with us. We know from the New Testament that the Holy Spirit came after Jesus ascended into heaven. And the Holy Spirit himself really is the embodiment of God's promise to never leave or forsake his people. Jesus made a similar promise that he would be with his people always, even until the end of the age. And the Holy Spirit is a fulfillment of that. So God is here. And that's perhaps the most important point of today. But if we're honest, whether we study the Bible or we look at the world around us, I think we could all say that God's presence doesn't always look the way that we expect it to. Let's look again at this generation who returned from exile in Babylon. As we said, when they read these words or heard these words, here is your God, that became clear to them in God bringing his people back home. But imagine for a moment what they would have saw as they came back to Jerusalem. We have a good record of how the Babylonian Empire left the city of Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 36 tells us that the Babylonians broke down the wall destroyed the gates with fire, took all the furnishings and treasures of the temple away, and burned the temple to the ground. Seventy-five years later, it wasn't going to be any better. 
You read the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah receives a report of the surviving people in Jerusalem and the conditions in which they live. Nehemiah's response to this report, I think, tells us everything we, we need to know. He sat down and wept for days. So here is your God for this generation means a return to Jerusalem. But this was not the same Jerusalem that once was. This couldn't have been what they expected. Surely when God returned, things had to be more than this or better than this. And yet, as we read in the book of Ezra, when God's people do return to Jerusalem, first things they do are they build an altar, they celebrate the Feast of Booths, and they make offerings to God. All three of these things are essentially ways that they would give thanks and praise to God for their return. So God had shown up and brought them home. And even though there was much work to be done, they'd have to rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall, and the gates of the city. And even though they would still live under the control of another empire, they recognized that God was with them. And for them, as we see in their praises and their celebration, that's all they needed to know. That was enough. Let's shift again to the time of Jesus' birth. We looked at these words of the angel who came to the shepherds a little bit. We'll look at it more fully now. Luke 2, the angel says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And then Luke goes on to tell us that the shepherds go to Bethlehem, see Jesus, and later return to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. I think it's probably fair to say that God's people, unless they were well-versed in the Old Testament prophecies, didn't expect God to return to them as a newborn baby. They probably also didn't expect that it would be about 30 years from this moment before Jesus would even begin his time of ministry. And if you look at the lives of these shepherds, there's probably a pretty good chance that some of these shepherds didn't live those 30 years to see Jesus even start that ministry. And then, of course, when Jesus did start his ministry, he didn't do the things that a lot of people expected. He didn't overthrow the Roman Empire, for one. And of course, John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel that Jesus came to his own people, but they didn't recognize him. So God was there, but it wasn't in the way that his people expected. But for the shepherds on that first night, it didn't matter. They weren't concerned about the wait. They returned and glorified they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen because God's presence with them and that knowledge was all that they needed. So for us, just like the generation returning from exile, we might look around us in the world today and see lots of signs of destruction and desolation, perhaps more signs of that than we do of God's presence with us. And just like the generation who was alive for Jesus' birth, it might feel like there's a different kingdom and power than the kingdom of God. But we know that God is here and he is with us, even though it doesn't always look how we would expect. And that presence with us, God's presence with us, is enough for us. So that no matter what we face, no matter what's going on around us, his presence is what matters most. But what is it about God's presence that makes that knowledge enough for us? 
why could these shepherds proclaim and be joyful just at the presence of a newborn baby? Well, I think as we go through the rest of our passage today, it's going to give us some reasons. We're going to stay in verse 9. But the proclamation that the herald makes is not simply, here is God, although that would be an appropriate proclamation. Rather, the proclamation is, here is your God. As you read through the Old Testament, you read of several lesser gods of other nations. A few names, Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, just to name a few. But the God of Israel doesn't identify himself as just another God among the nations or just another God among other gods. If you look at how God identifies himself to his people, we have a couple of good examples. God says to Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will be their God. Later, when God gives the Ten Commandments to his people through Moses, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. So when God comes to his people, he clearly identifies himself as their God. So he's saying that he's not some distant, impersonal God. Rather, he's a God who is close to us, and he is with us. And we can see that God is with us when we remember, just as God instructed us to do, how he led his people out of slavery in Egypt. What is it about the Exodus that's important for us to remember? Well, I think there's a couple things. First, it's clear to see when you remember the Exodus that this was a feat that required great strength on the part of God. Think of the plagues that God sent upon Egypt in order to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. Think of how God parted the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptian army as they pursued God's people. This is God's power on display. Our God is a God who is so powerful that no one, not even the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time, could stand against. But there's more to the Exodus than just God's strength. God heard the cry of his people in slavery in Egypt, and so he rescued them. And after they left Egypt and they wandered through the desert for 40 years, God cared for his people. He provided them with manna and water. He saw to it that their clothing did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So God cared for his people as he led them for all those years to the home which he promised to give them. And so this phrase, your God, refers not to some impersonal God, but to a God who has shown great strength over his foes and at the same time, great tender care for his people. And it's this great strength and this great care which actually come up next for us in Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 starts with the phrase that God comes with might and his arm rules for him. And these two phrases, comes with might and his arm rules for him, are really saying the same thing. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see many times references to God's arm being a symbol of his strength. In fact, there's five references in the book of Deuteronomy alone as Moses recounts the story of the exodus from Egypt. The great strength and the great power of God is on display, and nobody can stand against it. And if we go back to the generations that we've been following here with Isaiah 40, we can see the strength of God as well. If you've read along through Isaiah, you'll know that long before the Babylonians were ever defeated, probably when everybody thought it was impossible, God had chosen the instrument of their defeat, 
The Persian Empire is foretold in the book of Isaiah, as is King Cyrus, by name even. They would be the instrument that God would use to bring his people home. And that, I think, is a display of the great strength of God, that he could raise up a people to destroy perhaps one of the greatest empires the world had ever seen at that time. If we look at the ministry of Jesus, I think we're all very familiar with many, many stories where Jesus casts out demons, confronts the religious elite, and of course ultimately secures victory over sin and death. Nothing could get in the way of Jesus, <clears throat> of Jesus proclaiming that victory, of Jesus securing that victory. And that's the strength of our God and Jesus. So God comes in strength. That's the message of verse 10. In the ancient world, for a king to come in strength would have meant that he would have come with his army behind him. And our God doesn't arrive alone either in this passage. But he doesn't come with an army. Verse 10 continues that God's reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Now these terms, reward and recompense, they're really saying the same thing. And as you look through the Old Testament, they are generally used to refer to something that one earns as a result of your work. So this reward that God earns is his, is his recompense. And it's actually identified to us in verse 11. It says that God tends his flock like a shepherd, and he gathers his lambs in his arms. So God's reward that he brings with him is his flock, and it's his lambs. It's those who need his care and his leadership. And he carries them in his arms and gently leads them along. And if we again look at these two generations that we're kind of following, we can see that care of God. God brings his people home from Babylon and blesses their efforts to rebuild that city, which is a display of his great care for his people. And of course, we know that the Gospels are full of references to Jesus' care for his people, his compassion for those who are sick, his compassion for sinners, and his reference to himself as our good shepherd, indicating that he would care for us. And so it's a simultaneous expression of the strength and care of God, I think, that explains the hope and the joy of those people who returned from exile, even though Jerusalem didn't look like what they wanted. I think it explains why the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God, even though it would be another 30 years before Jesus would even begin his ministry. And even then, the Roman Empire wasn't going anywhere. God was with his people. He was indeed their God, and they knew that nobody could stand against him, and nobody could keep him from taking care of his flock. Now, if you read further into Isaiah 40, you'll see many, many examples of the greatness of God. Just a couple for you. Verse 15 says that the nations are like a drop in the bucket, regarded as dust on scales, and God weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. All this is like nothing to God, and that displays the glory and might of him. And yet, the same time, the same God, as Jesus taught us, has numbered the very hairs on our head. And that shows his love and care for us, how much he knows us. Isaiah 40, 23 says that God is so powerful that he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. And yet, our God's love is so personal that Jesus, as we heard today, 
refers to himself as our good shepherd, willing to lay down his life for us, calling each of us by name and in a voice that we recognize. So God comes in strength and with great care, and this is why his people can rejoice at his coming and his presence, even if it looks like the world around us might be falling apart. There's one last part of our passage which I intentionally skipped over. It's back in verse 9. The herald is told not just to proclaim, here is your God, but to proclaim the message without fear, with a shout. Jesus gives a similar instruction to his disciples with the Great Commission when he says, go and make disciples of all nations. So we are to proclaim, I think in both word and action, that our God is here and that he has come. But if you stop and think about it, if we do so, there's a good expectation, I think, that many in this world will mock us for our faith. They'll mock us as we try to make that proclamation to them. Perhaps they mock us because they found other lesser gods to worship, things like pleasure, success, power, wealth. And they just don't understand why we would choose to worship our God and to serve someone other than ourselves. But regardless of why they might mock us, ultimately we know how the story ends. Right? We know from Jesus' words in his Gospels and from the book of Revelation that Jesus will indeed come again. And when he comes, he's going to come in strength to finally defeat Satan and his followers. And Jesus will come with great care for his people, as the book of Revelation says, wiping away every tear and getting rid of death and mourning and pain. And so regardless of what the world thinks and how they might mock us, we can proclaim, just as the herald is instructed to, loudly and without fear, here is your God. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your presence with us and for revealing through your word that you come with strength and with great care for your people. Let us be bold as we proclaim your presence to those you have placed in our lives. And let us look forward to and prepare ourselves for your return. In 